Before we dismiss the kids to their worship time, I'm going to ask Abby Sewell will come up. As we go through the book of 1 John, we are now going to be in chapter 4, and she will be reading 1 John 4 through 12. And we want you to come up, just grab that microphone there for you. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, have overcome them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Dear friends, let us love one another, for, the, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world, that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loves us, and his, he sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. Thank you, Abby, and we will dismiss the kids at this time. And I invite the rest of us to turn there to 1 John chapter 4, where we will continue to go through this very interesting book, this epistle of 1 John. As we have seen, John has his own, uh, his own way of talking. It's very different than the Apostle Paul. And it's more than just talking. It's, I was thinking this morning, you know, of all the New Testament writers, it seems like the Apostle Paul understands the mind of God, the plan of God the most. But I can't help but feel that the Apostle John understands the heart of God the most. And that's why he comes back again and again to this word, love. And uh, we're going to see it here again. But as I was thinking through this passage, <clears throat> and it talks about testing the spirits and everything, it occurred to me that, you know, we live in a time where we need this more than ever. You know, we, we have been living in a time where we have so much information, so many things coming at us. It's been called the information age, but you could almost, lately at least, call it the misinformation age as well, right? I mean, there are things out there that you get across your Facebook feed or news feed or whatever, and you wonder, okay, is this true? Or even, even pictures, you know, used to be, Picture's worth a thousand words. You know, the proof's in the picture, right? Um, but now, with Photoshop and everything else, you have to wonder, okay, is this picture I'm looking at real or fake? And by the way, do you know that they're starting to do that with videos now? They're called deep fake videos, and they've got, uh, it's a lot more difficult than with, uh, than with still pictures. But right now, people are perfecting deep fake videos. So you can see someone, usually a public 
person, a politician, saying or doing something, and in fact, they never said or did that. It is difficult but necessary to discern what's real and not real, to discern the fake from the true. And if that's true, even in cultural politics issues, how much more in the issues of our faith? Because these are the eternal things, right? And yet there are many ways that we can be deceived in this world. And if the Apostle John had to tell the people in the first century, I want you to understand how to test the spirits and test yourselves, we were going to need that too. We're not smarter than they are. We're not closer to the New Testament times. We're going to have probably more need to discern the spirits. So as we uh, begin talking about this, let us, let us pray. Let's pray in the spirit of humility. Father, we always tend to overestimate our own uh, analytical abilities to discern right from wrong and true from fake. Would you allow us the grace to be humble in this, God? Would you allow us the grace to receive your word fully? Would you allow us the grace to understand it? And would you allow us, give us the grace to respond to it in the right way, please? Lord, I pray that you are lifted up here this morning. I pray that it's not me or this church or anyone else or anything else that's lifted up, but that you are. Through the truth that you give us through your word, would you be exalted, Jesus, and would you, through that, draw us to yourselves, to yourself. Thank you, Father. Amen. All right, so 1 John 4, verses 1 through 12. I'm going to break this down into, into three parts, and the first part is this. We are told that we should test the spirits. We are told that we should test the spirits. It's right there in the first verse. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirit to see whether they are from God. Now, what does he mean by spirit? Well, he explains right here. For there are many false prophets that have gone out into the world. And then, so in, in their time frame, they had false teachers and just, just like ours. We're going to be naive to think that we don't need this just as much. So there were many people who would claim the name of Jesus who were teaching or doing some sort of prophetic ministry, and yet they were not his. Now, it has always been true. It's going to be true uh, today. It will be true 100 years from now. It's always true that when there's something so valuable and precious as the gospel of Christ, that there will be people who imitate that and who pervert that, right? They're going to be false teachers. There always have been. Now, he's going to give us a way to understand how we can do this. And uh, I got my little slide clicker here. And I, I put it like this. He gives us an acid test. First, though, we should realize. All right, thank you. <laughs> what the acid test is not. All right, so an acid test, let's explain that for a second. Say the idea that you find a piece of jewelry. Maybe you're walking along the beach and you find the jewelry looks gold, or maybe you inherit something from a distant uncle and they've got all this, these things, or, and there's a gold ringer there. And, and you don't know, though. Is, I mean, it could be real gold, it could be fake, it could be 24 karat, it could be brass, this you know, color to look like gold. How do you test it? Well, the easiest way and the best way, the way that most often is, it's called the acid test. So you've probably heard that phrase, the acid test. This is the definitive way of proving something, right? Well, it comes from this. 
So here's what you would do. You take that gold ring or jewelry or whatever it was, and you would scratch it on what's called a touchstone. And it's going to leave a golden mark. It's going to leave some of its material on there. And then what you would do is you would take a, a bottle of acid, and they have different strengths for different uh, purity levels of the gold, and you would pour it on that line. And then you'd wait about two minutes. And if that line dissolved, then you knew it was fake. But if it stayed there, then you knew you had the real thing. That's the acid test. And he's going to give us an acid test for testing the spirits, but also for ourselves. Here's what it's not. It is not, when we test the spirits, it is not supernatural signs or powers. They can be deceptive. In the Old Testament, again, way before Christ, they had the problem of false prophets. And in another place in Deuteronomy, he says, okay, one test of the prophet is whatever they say has to come true, right? Because if it's God speaking through them, it's going to be the truth. So if someone gets it half right or something, that's, they're not for me. But this is a more interesting passage. Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 3. If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a sign or a wonder, and if the sign or wonder spoken takes place, and the prophet says, let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them, you must not listen to the words of the prophet or the dreamer. Now this is interesting. This is obviously a false prophet, right? And yet the sign or the dream or the prediction they had came true. So one of the things we're told is don't look at just these outward signs because they can be deceiving. Jesus kind of mentioned the same thing. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing. All right, so we have to be careful because they're going to look like sheep. They're going to look like Christians. They're going to look like Christian leaders or teachers or preachers or prophets. Uh, they're wearing sheep's clothing because if they were wearing their, their wolf clothing, we'd more easily see it, right? But inwardly, they're ferocious wolves. And then he goes on, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, and this is a very scary verse, by the way, if you ask me the scariest verse in the New Testament, this might be it. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Now, they're standing before the Lord. I don't think they're going to do this if they're making a false claim. But he says, then I will tell them plainly, depart from me. I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Wow. Wow. So one of the things that we in our culture have to be very wary about is believing someone because of these, these signs or prophecies being fulfilled. But instead, we're given the acid test here in 1 John, and it's focused really on the teaching and the focus about Jesus. I'll get ahead to that one. He goes on to say, this is how we recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge that Jesus does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and he's even now already in the world. All right, so what he's saying basically is you begin with their teaching about Jesus. It's always about Jesus. Every heretical group is primarily going to be marked by a false teaching about Jesus. 
Now, in this case, the group he was battling with, if you remember as we go through 1 John, there was a very specific cultural situation. He was battling these, these false teachers, and, and we would call them, well, if, if you're into church history, you call them an early version of Gnostics. They would claim the name of Jesus, but really what they were saying was that Jesus was someone who came along and had the secret special knowledge of God. And through these secret ceremonies and these secret experiences, we can, we can show you the secret knowledge of Jesus. So Jesus wasn't important as a savior. He wasn't from God necessarily. He was just someone who really knew all the good stuff. And that's why he goes to great pains. He wants them to understand that these people are not from God. He says, look, if they're not affirming that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, because they didn't, remember part of their understanding was that flesh was worthless or, or, uh, or evil. So God could not have come in the flesh. He says, anyone who denies that, right off the bat, you know, is not from God. Now, I think we should probably realize John makes very black and white statements. I don't think he'd want us to say that, okay, anyone who affirms the incarnation is necessarily that someone we should listen to. I mean, the Mormons and other groups would affirm the incarnation to some degree or but rather, he, he wants to focus to be on the teaching about Jesus. Are they getting this right? So first of all, right doctrine about Jesus. And then I think kind of building upon this, expanding this a little bit, there's also, I think, going to be, if, if it's a true prophet of God, it's a true spirit speaking God's word, there's going to be not only the right doctrine about Jesus, but the right focus about Jesus, a Jesus-centric focus. So what I mean by that, there's a particular way that they're always looking and coming back to. In that way, that theme is Jesus and the cross. The Apostle Paul, when he was contending with false preachers in Corinth of a little different kind, he says, hey guys, here's how you know when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, like these other guys apparently, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came with weakness and trembling. He says, this, this wasn't about me, that I, I was this great speaker. I had one message, one thing I focused on again and again and again. And if you read through the epistles of Paul, you see he brings everything back to this. This is his focus. Everything else he's going to interpret by this. I want to know Christ, as he tells us in the book of Philippians. I want to know Christ and the power of the resurrection. I don't want to know anything else than this. And that, that Jesus focus, that cross focus, is I think really the mark of those people who are preaching or prophesying rightly in God's name. I remember... Um, <clears throat> I mentioned this before, so you've heard this. First church I ever walked out of. I was at a church in, in Arizona. I was visiting my mom, and I went, went to this church. Um, it had a good online presence. And, uh, and the first thing, I, I go into this church. I had never been there before. And they had this large bookstore off in the foyer, the rather large foyer, rather large church. And it was called the Winner's Bookstore. I'm like, hmm, okay. So I go in there. I look at the books. They're not books about growing in humility, growing in the fruits of the Spirit, growing in prayer. Uh, no, the, the pastor and his son, actually, who's also on staff, um, they had these books about how to become a millionaire. 
All right. So I go into the service. I'm like, okay, I'm here. Uh, that's not really a good sign, but I'm here, right? So I go in, and uh, they have some songs coming, songs about, you know, we're ready as we can be. We're going to expect these great things. And, and out of those songs, only one of them even mentioned the name of Jesus. Pastor begins preaching. He talks about how this is going to be a miracle service and, and how great this, this church is and what great things, you know, that, that God is going to do through them and, and how important they are and how much they need to give to, the, to this church and over and over. And so I start talking about his own giving and how he's given all this to the church. And 45 minutes into this service, and I realize I've heard the name of Jesus one time, and that was in that song. And I, I was so grieved in spirit, I had to leave. I have a feeling that they would probably, if you ask them the right question about the doctrinal teaching of the Incarnation, they'd probably get it right. But the focus was not on Jesus at all. Here's the third thing that goes along with that, kind of a, a Jesus-magnifying heart. A Jesus-magnifying heart. How do you know uh, someone is preaching through the Spirit of God? The focus is on Jesus. It's not themselves. It's not even on the Spirit. It's not on the things the Spirit might do. Jesus, when he introduced the concept of the Holy Spirit in, in John chapter 16, what did he say? He will testify about me. And that is the Spirit's role again and again, is to point to the beauty and the majesty of Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross again and again. So uh, 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 there's this Jesus magnifying heart that's going to come along with that. And in fact, you know, the next verses, he, I, I can't help but think he's contrasting this a bit. Dear children, you are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They, and he's thinking especially of the false teachers, are from the world, and therefore they speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. Now, what did he mean by that? Weren't they saying the name of Jesus? Yeah. But remember that these false teachers, and they, they have their kin today, their emphasis was on the self-fulfillment of the individual. So you needed Jesus to give you the special knowledge, and you needed the group to have these special experiences so that ultimately you could be more enlightened and you could go higher up this chain of enlightenment. In other words, the whole focus was using Jesus for one's own self-fulfillment and self-advancement and self-betterment. It's a good thing we're not tempted by any of that today, right? It's a good thing you couldn't go to the Christian bookstore if they still had some and find five books for fulfilling your life more, having a better this or this or this part of your life than about becoming a person focused on Jesus Christ and the cross, living in the humility of that. There's a Jesus-centric focus, uh, not, a, not a world focus that is about self-fulfillment. This is together growing more like Christ and what he's done. And then finally, uh, a Jesus-shaped life. A Jesus-shaped life. Well, I'm hung up again, Becky. Can you start me off? First John 2, 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God has truly made completed him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. So there is a Jesus-shaped lifestyle, Jesus-shaped heart, 
right? And, and we would expect that. What are we told are the fruits of the Spirit? How do we know someone has the Spirit of God? Well, Galatians 6, the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You say, well, how can I know that when, when this person's on the TV screen and I don't know them? Well, maybe it's a good reason not to put too much truck in what people say when we don't know them. All right? But there's a Jesus-shaped life that should accompany any spirit that claims to be from Jesus. All right, fine. This is how we kind of test the spirits. But I can't help but feel that in this next part, he also wants us to test ourselves. He wants to tell us that there is also an acid test to know whether we are really in Christ. You see, it'd be tragic to follow some false teacher or whatever who wasn't from God. But can you imagine how much worse it would be if we were self-deceived? I mean, remember those people that Jesus was talking about in Matthew 7? Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and did we not do miracles and cast out demons? They thought they were his. And when Jesus looked at them, he said, I never knew you. That is scary. How can we know? How can we know that we're his? You know, I never see in the scripture where we're told that the way we know that we're in Christ is by thinking about some past experience where we said, I chose, I, I believe this certain thing about Jesus. And I believe we do have to make a confession that Jesus Christ, we believe he is from God, that he's died for our sins, and we receive that salvation for ourselves, right? That is the gospel. But when we're asked to examine ourselves, and we are, let's see here. I don't know why it's being so janky today. I'll just read it. <laughs> um, 1 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the face. Test yourselves. Uh, 1 Peter I'm 2 Peter 1.10. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. It's never about what we believe intellectually, but what we're doing. And here that's the case with John. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. So John tells us the acid test is love. In fact, in previous chapter, chapter 2, verse 9, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother or sister is still in darkness. Anyone who loves their brother or sister lives in the light and there's nothing in them to make them stumble. Uh, chapter 3, verse 14, and we know that we have passed from death to life. How? How do we know that? How do we know that we passed from death to life? Well, here, because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. The acid test, John tells us, is not about what we say we believe. It's whether we're going to love or not. That is it. Three times in just these passages, I can show you more, even in 1 John, he says, this is the test. This is the test. Now, here's the thing, though. We have to understand what John means, what the New Testament means by the word love, and not what our culture says the love means. Uh, I see these sides around town love more. I agree wholeheartedly with that sentiment. I'm just not sure we're defining the terms quite the same way. 
because what we're told here is this, verse 9. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. In chapter 3, verse 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Here's where I put, love is not something you feel, it's something you do. Do you notice anywhere he says, this is how you know love, by the intensity of your feeling, or how pure or and long-lasting that feeling of, of deep affection is. No. This is love. That God laid down his life for us through Jesus Christ. That he gave of himself as an atoning sacrifice to meet the deepest need of our hearts. And, and that's one of the things we have to get away from. Love is not primarily what we feel. It's what we do. I heard a Christian counselor, and he was relating that as he talked to couples, very often he, he'd get the same message from the couple usually the husband and the wife together, we just don't love each other anymore. What do we do? And he says, I always have the same response, love each other. Wait, wait, you don't understand. We don't love each other anymore. I get that. So love each other. And he'd go on to make this point because what they were confusing was a feeling that was going to come and go with the action of giving towards that other person's needs. This is how we're told that God showed his love among us. He gave his only son to be the sacrifice for our sin. I put it this way then. If I was going to sum up, if I was going to sum up what the Bible defines as love in one sentence, I guess I would put it like this. Love is sacrificial giving for the needs of the other person. Love is sacrificial giving towards the needs of the other person. It's giving. It's an action. When we love, we are giving up something, just like God gave up something great when he chose Jesus to go to the cross. When Jesus loved us, he gave up all his authority and power he gave. It's a sacrificial giving, right? So I can give to some people, you know, if I can go down the street, someone asked me for a dollar on the street, pull, if I got a dollar bill in my pocket, I pulled out all right, I'm giving to the first, but it's not really much of a sacrifice, right? This is a sacrificial giving. First Peter, it wasn't with gold and jewels and precious stones, these empty things that you redeem from an empty way of life, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That is what God gave to you and I. He gave sacrificially of the best he had, and he did this to meet our deepest need. It says, it says here, to be an atoning sacrifice. To be the atone, there's a lot of things with that word. You could have a lot of books written about that, and there have been. Just think of that, at one meant, atonement, at one meant, because that's really the heart. Atonement means that this is the way that we and God are brought together and are brought to be at one. It's a beautiful concept. That is our deepest need. We were created, not by ourselves, but by God. We are created to live in a certain way. And it's our sin problem that has distorted that, perverted who we are, but more than that, cut us off from our creator and perfecter. And our deepest need is to have that sin problem removed and dealt with so that we can be restored to God. That is what he has given towards. 
This is love. To give freely to the needs of the other person. Sacrificially. All right, now, we're going to apply this here just in a second. <laughs> but one thought before we do that. Why is, why? Why is love the acid test of being God's children? Well, he tells us, because God is love. Verse 8. God is love. Love is not simply what he does. It is who he is. And therefore, it's the spiritual DNA he passes on to his children. And if we are loving, that is a, this way, sacrificial giving towards the needs of another, that is a sign that we've got his DNA within us. And second, he says, because in this way, verse 12, no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Wait a second. There's an incompleteness to God's love? Wait, I have to love in order for God's love to be complete? How does that work? Well, I think we can think of at least two ways that something can be incomplete, right? Think of a house. There could be, there's a house being built across the street from us, uh, or across the pond from us, rather. And, uh, you know, it's got the foundation, it's got the basement, and they're starting to put up the walls now. But it has no roof, and the walls are just, at this point, studs. All right, that's an incomplete house. We get that. You know, there's another house just down the road uh, that they're trying to sell, and they haven't sold yet. And, uh, and, you know, it's a beautiful house. Everything is made just right. The builders have done all the things. It's got all the checklists. But here's the problem. There's no one living in it. It was made for a purpose, to be lived in, so a family or people could live in there, find shelter and warmth and, and hopefully a joy of within that, and it's not, being, it's not being that. Why? Not because there's anything wrong with the construction, but because the fulfillment of that depended upon it, it having this purpose. In the same way, God's love can be complete through you. When you receive his love, the sacrificial giving, and then you choose to give that to another because that's the intended purpose of all that God is doing. He's not saving us as individuals so we can get out of hell and, and go to this, you know, have this eternal bliss individually. He's saving us to be a new humanity of people who are marked by love. And when we show that, we are completing what he is doing. That's the idea. All right, more briefly then, let's end up with some words of application. How do we, how do we apply this? I think it would, it would be very ironic after especially after last week you talked about don't love in word or deed, but, or don't love in thought or word but in action. It, it'd be ironic if we left out here saying, oh, that's a good sermon, and, and then I do anything. So uh, what should we do? Well, first, we need to understand something. That to love will, will give, love, to love in our culture will mean giving my time, attention, and involvement. Now, John was writing in a culture where there were some people who were on the brink of poverty and starvation. So he talks quite a bit in, that, in this passage about giving to the financial needs of others. All right, there may be times we need to do that. But in our culture, isn't it true that the most valuable thing we have and the thing we're most reluctant to give up is time and involvement, to put skin in the game, in someone else's messiness? It's a lot easier to write a check for most of us than it is to say, okay, I'll give you my time open-ended to help you. So we need to have our eyes open about love is going to cost. It will cost us 
ease. It will cost us comfort. It will cost us time. Secondly, and, and this is really good advice. I, I heard it somewhere. It's not original, I don't think. In, in all of our spiritual life, this is good advice. Do what you can, not what you can't. I should be praying two hours a day like Martin Luther did. Well, yeah, that'd be great, but you're not going to do it, and neither am I. But I could pray 15 or 20 minutes while I'm driving to work or in the morning. I can, I can cut out this thing at night so I can spend 20 or 30 minutes of prayer there. Uh, and in the same way here, all right, you're not going to be able to love everyone this way. Jesus was able to. You're not Jesus. I'm not Jesus. You figured that out right now, right? I am not going to be a person who can love consistently, sacrificially for the good of another without caring about what they do or, or what they are for me. I can't do that. But I can choose to love my wife better by giving myself to her. I can choose to, to love my neighbor better. I can choose to love someone else more fully. I can choose to ministry that I can give myself into. There are things I can do. And, and sometimes, you ever heard the phrase, the best is the enemy of the good? Yeah, the best thing would be for me to pray two hours. But if I can't do that, I shouldn't let that stop me from praying for, for 20 minutes. The best thing would be for me to love everybody in this way. But that shouldn't stop me and my inability to do the best from doing the good of loving someone else. Maybe there's someone else in your own life. And that's the third part here. We ask God to open, open your eyes to a particular person or a particular way to love. It might be a ministry, but very often it might be just a person in your life. Open the eyes of our heart. What do we need to see? Their infinite worth. When we look at the people in our life, very often what we see is how they meet our needs, our expectations, fulfill our desires. God forgive us. That's not how God looked at us. We need his help to say, God, help me to see the infinite eternal value in that other person, even when they do things that annoy me or hurt me or don't live up to my expectations, to see their infinite value. Secondly, to see their true need. To see their true need. Uh, you know, I mentioned giving handouts to people asking on the streets. To be honest, I don't usually do that. Why? Because... I have a feeling that their true need is not going to be enhanced by giving them this if I don't know them and what they're going to spend it on. Now, we're free to disagree with about that, but I, I, you know, I've given a lot of time and a lot of money to Wheeler Ministry because that is an organization that understands how to meet those true needs. And in the same way, what people want from us may not be what they truly need. Their deepest need has become more like Jesus Christ. They may need assurance, they may need health, they may need encouragement in order to get there from us. Not just the things that uh, may present themselves as a, their desires. And then last, we need to ask, or third, to the specific way that we can meet that need. So let's ask God to say, okay, I don't want to believe this is a vague intention, good intention. Show me. Show me how I can use whatever I have to help meet that person's deepest need. And then finally, ask God to open your eyes to the glory of God working his love through you. The glory of God. This is a great quote from Teresa of Avila. 
Christ has no body now but yours. Now, this is true and false, by the way. Jesus does have a physical body, but it's not here with us. So I think the point stands. In this world right now, Christ does not have a body but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he was compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands through which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands. Yours are the feet. Yours are the eyes. You are his body. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. That is a beautiful, glorious thing. Yeah, it costs to love this way. But when God opens your eyes to the glory that the eternal God of the universe is working his heart of love towards others through me, man, what wouldn't I get for that? You know, at the end of our life, we're going to stand before this one, the one we love, face to face. I think we might have some various emotions at that time, right? And I wonder what God will ask of us at that time. I can't help but feel that he's going to ask us one question. Some of you know the name Pete Rose. Well, if you know anything about baseball, you know Pete Rose. Uh, He holds the records for the most hits by a player ever, 42,056. He still got that record, Dan? Okay. Uh, You know what? He's better remembered. I mean, he had a gambling problem later in life. Okay, let's admit that. But he was a great baseball player. The one thing he was noted for was his hustle. He gave 110% every play. It didn't matter if their team was up 8-0 to or down 10-0. to He gave it all. In fact, uh, he was known, his nickname was Charlie Hustle because that's what he was and that's what he, how he viewed the game. You give everything you've got no matter what. Pete Rose's son, Pete Rose Jr., played minor league baseball in the South Bend Hawks. One of the owners of the team's he came along uh, when Pete Rose was, was jogging with some of his men or some of the players, and, and he says, uh, I saw Pete Rose, and I, I fell into step with him, identified myself and my South Bend connection, and I gave Pete my observation of Pete Jr. Pete Jr. He says, he never looked at me, smiled or broke stride. All he said was, did he hustle? The question the guy's going to ask is, Not did we get it all right. Not did we achieve. Not did we fail or less than we succeeded. He's going to ask us one thing. Did you love? Because that's my heart. That's what I'm known for. That's who I am. If we get that one thing right, won't that be a glorious day to be able to say, yeah, I did. 